Welcome back to another episode of Life with the Dog. My name's Panos, joined by my co-host Luke Badman. And today we have a guest, Boyd Hooper, who was one of the early founders of the NDTF and the first president of the NDTF, one of the founders of the CERT Academy and owner of Task 9 Canine Training. I'm sure, I'm sorry if I got the name wrong, but welcome, Boyd, onto the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Pleasure to be here. Oh, the pleasure is ours. We, um, from my perspective, you know, Glenn has been mine and Luke mentor and one of our teachers, and we know that you are one of um, Glenn's mentors and teachers. So it's really cool to um, to be speaking with you today, and you know, sharing all the cool some topics and the things that we're going to be talking about today with our listeners. So it's 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 quite honourable to have you on the show. So thank you very much. Thanks. Years ago, actually, uh, people, some people like Glenn and stuff nicknamed me the godfather of training um, thing, but uh, now Glenn jokingly calls me the grandfather of training, <laughs> even though I'm actually not a grandfather yet, but uh, uh, notwithstanding, I have been around for a long time. Well, you know, I think you've been responsible for, for like, you know, the ripple effects that you've done within the training industry and in, in, within Australia in particular um, is quite profound. So it's um it's really, really cool. Actually, in fact, I would like to talk a little bit about just, you know, and in a bit of a nutshell, like a little bit of your history and like your origin of dog training, what got you into training and, you know, and, and what got you to develop, you know, the, the early stages of what the NDTF was back in the day. I'm, I'm really keen to hear a bit about that. Sure. All right. Well, I'll do it as a sort of a snapshot. I'll move pretty quickly. And then if you want to delve into any particular area in more detail, you just mention it. So uh, I was my, my even my family were always dog sort of people. My grandfather had lots of dogs. He uh, lived on a farm and used the dogs for um, herding and other sort of farmed purposes. In fact, my grandfather told me that he lost every dog he ever had to snakes, and he said it was about eleven or twelve dogs. He couldn't remember exactly, but uh, living in that rural area, um, he lived up in the Grampians. For those that uh, from Victoria and stuff, it's a very famous and very nice region up there. Um, and my parents were dog, you know, loved dogs and stuff. They had dogs before I was born. Uh, all the early pictures of me as a baby in the crib, etc., uh, were there was a dog lying either next to me or next to the crib. And um, you can see me out on the front veranda of the house with the dog, no people, just the dog sort of laying guard. So, yeah, there was never a time when I was being reared where I didn't have dogs and I had uh, separate, you know, a few, you know, a couple of dogs um, right through my childhood and the like. What breed um, were they typically? One was a, a sort of a crossbreed named Doogie and the other main dogs that we had were labs and lab crosses, black labs and stuff. Yeah. So, and I still have, um, you know, black labs to this day. So, um, not, not, I'm, I'm much more of a shepherd guy these in the modern era, but I have, um, you know, as far as when I had pets when we were young, it was just Labradors and the like. And then I got into Roddies. Um, so, well, that sort of brings me up to, I, I was heavily involved in martial arts as a teenager. And one of my martial arts instructors, a guy named Ray Jones, had a German shepherd. And he used to take it to a training school um, and it was a obedience and protection training school, you know, so it was training a lot of guard dogs and there was a lot of security people and police and stuff used to go there and train. And so when I was young, 17 sort of thing, I used to go with Ray and his dog's name was Ninja and German Shepherd and I used to handle the dog and I got sort of interested. And so that prompted me to get my own working dog. Um, I, I love Roddy's back in the day, so I 
got a roddy a bought an adult dog off a, a guy that i knew from the training club there got into that and then uh, pretty shortly after that got another dog so i had a german shepherd so had the roddy and the shepherd and got into breeding in roddies pretty heavily um had a lot of roddies but um had various breeds during that whole time you know i still had a labrador at that time so at one stage i had the labrador the german shepherd the roddy um for sort of different applications you might say and yeah and just got heavily into roddies um then started got um vet met various mentors in that early stage um a guy named rod uh, marif who was a he at one stage he was there he sort of started the obedience club uh, at the rottweiler club down in victoria uh, and various other training things he was a very good trainer competitive trainer dog trainer owned a big boarding kennel down here uh, which still is going to this day um, were, were they training schutzen when you said that you're going to training um school with um with your teacher with ninja was it like a schutzen type of training no okay sport dog at all it was uh sort of working things i did meet some schutzen people there um another mentor of mine was a guy named brian mclaren who i sort of call the godfather of um schutzen in this country most of the names that i would mention are most people wouldn't know because it's a long long time ago you know these discussions we're having here are over 40 years ago more yeah, well. than years ago so um yeah that puts it in perspective and i mean brian who was definitely one of my mentors and as i said i think of him as the godfather of schutzen in in uh, this country i mean he's long dead you know I, I don't remember how many years ago he died but uh i know glenn was at the funeral with me mm. um but you know it, it was i would say it was at least 10 years since um yeah, well, Brian died, but it, it could be well 15 years or something. I, you know, it's hard to remember exactly. But, um, and Rod is still alive, but he is an old man now, like he's, you know, he's well in his 80s. Um, and uh, you know, retired, long retired. And his, his wife, who was a bit of a mentor to me as well, she's long dead. You know, she's been dead probably for at least 10 years, I would think, mm. mate. So, you know, we, we are talking a long, long time back, but you asked me about the history. So I had these various mentors um, uh, and other names that I won't bother mentioning, but they're just people from the past that were trainers and the like. But from the early stages, once I got into it, I was pretty committed to it right from the word go. So by the time I was 18, I was training regularly. I started doing security work with um, my dog that I was working at that place. So, you know, security patrol work with the dog and um, doing security work at venues and things like that with the dog in lots of circumstances and concerts and stuff. Used to have a lot of big outdoor concerts. They still do have them, you know, like you, you often hear Jimmy Barnes or, you know, uh, another artist and stuff are playing those venue concerts. Well, they used have dog patrols around the outside so i used to do a lot of those for the early bands you know midnight oil and um the angels and uh, john farnham and all of those sorts of concerts and stuff so and that sort of networked me into a whole lot of other people that were working in the industry i should also point out a, a call out here to for chris gotsopoulos who um at von farrell many of your viewers would know chris very well known guy in the yeah, industry no, chris yep and chris and i are the same age uh, you know we're i think we're born the same year um so yeah we're but if not we're only six months apart and chris 
where I met Chris, we were both 17 and we were training at that original club that I said where we were taking Ninja. Um, I didn't know him there, but just because we were the same age, he was into Dobermans. I was into, well, I was working Ninja initially because I did my own dog and then I got a, got my Roddy, which I bought off a guy named Paul Fifield, who's another blast from the past, still around, Paul. Um, doesn't train dogs anymore, but still, still around. And... Yeah, so I just sort of networked my way through, always had dogs, probably was more security orientated in the beginning, but then fell in love with it, uh, started traveling quite a bit, you know, went to Europe um, a number of times and um, the States. And then I'll, I'll jump from there as while I was training with Rod and we were a few years into it, I'm thinking now that I'm I'm still young, so I'm, it was before I joined the army. So I'm thinking it was about twenty. I must have been about twenty. Joined the army when I was twenty-one. Um, so when I was twenty, Rod and I decided to open up a, a dog club. Uh, okay, and um, we named it Australian Dog Training, um, and uh, we started a location up in Kilsyth, which was near to where Rod's facility was, our side of town, so to speak. Um, I should also point out that the, the the club, so to speak, where I was training with Ninja and doing that early training where I met Chris and those kind of things, they closed that club down. Um, probably, I'd say I was only there for about a year and they closed it down, just lost interest. I can't remember exactly why, but um, yeah, I just think that they just decided it wasn't for them and they had other priorities. So in fact, Chris and I started... Uh, for the people who were interested, we started our own little sort of side club um, over that side of town. That club was running in a place called Research, which um, even people from Melbourne, half of them wouldn't know where that is, but it's... Um, it's an interesting name. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's Eltham El Way for those that are looking for a zone, but it was out in the sticks. And, um, yeah, and so we... We continued to train because we were still interested. Uh, we were pretty young and naive at that stage. As I said, we were, you know, 19 or something like that, roughly. And um, so we we were just training with the people who wanted to keep training because we were enjoying it. Um, wasn't really a formal structure or whatever. Then I started working with Rod and uh, we were training dogs and we were selling, started selling dogs and doing boarding and training for dogs for a whole lot of different things. So we were doing track work, we were doing some, um, you know, a lot of obedience and problem solving. It was a whole sort of diverse range of things. Rod was a keen tracker as well, you know, a very experienced tracker and had, you know, um, titles to add title to a lot of dogs in tracking, was a very sort of skilled tracker and obedience trainer. Um, and yeah, and so one thing just led to another, and then Rod and I opened the club, and then that built up, and that got, and then we opened several clubs um, around the place, and that's when it really started to network out. Because once I opened up several of those clubs, so now we're moving out of the eighties into the nineties, I guess, and then uh, around that period, the people who we know and we talk about started to come along and to join. For example, Glenn. I don't. You'd have to check with Glenn exactly what year he came but he just he was a young man um i actually knew glenn because he trained martial arts with me anyway um and so there was a bit of a carryover between the martial arts and the training side of things and so yeah that, that's how we sort of all um started to connect and started to grow and open more clubs and then got more commercial about it and training and then uh i don't know if you want me to talk about how we started the yeah yeah definitely 
Okay, well, all right. So to segue into that, so okay, so we're now uh, into the early. Well, actually, in 1989, it occurred to me that I was running the clubs and the people who were instructing at the club, which is the same everywhere up until that time. The only experience they had as instructors and trainers was effectively that they were uh, training. They trained their own dog at the club, <clears throat> and then they sort of were hijacked into running classes. They just got interested, but they didn't really have any extra training or any formal training. And I just want to point out that that was the norm. Um, and it still is a bit of the norm in some places, which I think is a bit disappointing. Um, it became apparent to me. I, I should also point out as a segue here, at, during those early years, I got connected to a lot of the agencies, police agencies and um you know, law enforcement and prisons and um, military and those kind of things. And I was doing a lot of that stuff. I was a very fit, when I was young, I was an extremely fit athletic guy. Um, so that made me a good decoy and a good trainer and stuff like that because people would, you know, throw me around. I could work dogs pretty well. Um, I went overseas in the late 80s to both Europe and in America in early, uh, uh, late 80s and into the early 90s, 89, 90 and 91. I was traveling a lot. To, and the reason I was traveling is to, to learn more. Uh, was, you know, there were dog training trips. Um, in fact, at least one of those was with Chris and various other trainers who we've just mentioned. Um, yeah, and we, we would travel around the States or go to Europe, to Germany and to Holland and stuff like that in there and train with different people and networking. And I guess that was really, really important back in those days because obviously no social media and, you know, dog training wasn't really like a popular thing. So you had to go out and actually search for the the, the training. And, and how is it that you, you did that? You just had network, like a network that kind of pointed you in the right direction or how did you know where to go? Different world, yeah. eh? It, that's right. It was a different world, and you're exactly right. It was the yellow pages. It, well, Not the world where we can now, the three of us, be in three separate places and have a high definition audio and video conversation. That certainly wasn't the case a long time ago, right? Yeah. Well, um, the, I can answer it in one word, actually, to a degree, and the word is networking. Okay. So, for example, Stuart Hilliard, who was a fantastic mentor to me, he works for the US military these days and has for a long, long time. Um, and I say that Stuart, I, I'm not sure that anybody has had as much influence on me as Stuart Hilliard did. And the reason I say that is that Stuart had a um, had a degree in psychology initially, and then uh, later, quite a bit later, did his PhD in behavioral neuroscience. But he was also a really good trainer and an athletic guy and involved in he was the first uh, ring french ring certified decoy in the united states uh he traveled a lot he was he was a sort of a kindred spirit um a little bit older than me so just just enough older to me to be a mentor to me so to speak like a big brother type thing stayed with Stuart over in Texas he was living in Te he's from Colorado originally but he was living in Texas there studying and things and so Stuart had written a book back in the day, I think is how I originally connected to him. And then because we were talking on the phone and then we went over and stayed with 
uh, Stuart, and then he connected me to a lot of other people within the States um, and, you know, like within the ring sport and then as an extension to that to KMPV and blah, blah, blah. You know, one thing led to the other. And when I went to Holland, Willem Gelpin and other people um, in Holland, and they would network me out and take me to places. And so instead of using sort of social media to connect, you connected firsthand. You either spoke to the people on the phone. Like a, like a real human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. What's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, so quickly to sort of wrap up, we can move on. So, okay, so we it, it became apparent to me in the late 80s that I wanted to do something around the training. So that's why I wasn't just traveling to learn more about dogs. I was very conscious, particularly by the time we're at about 1990, I was very conscious of looking at what training schools were overseas how they were running things and how we could do something similar in Australia because there wasn't anything at all. Yeah. Okay. So the only way people became trainers in this country was they trained with somebody else and just by the osmosis of training with somebody else, they then became a trainer at that club. So the most common way is that people would have been in an obedience club or a dog training club of some description. They would have trained their dog up through a few levels, let's say to an advanced obedience level. And then they either did a one day instructor program or nothing. And they just said, well, you, you've trained your dog up to this level. <clears throat> so you're now sort of qualified to be an instructor and you're instructing others. Um, and look, to be honest with you, I think up until the 80s, that maybe that's the way that things were done and that was kind of the technology. But it became apparent to me that that was, they just didn't have any underpinning knowledge. They didn't have any background knowledge. It'd be just like hanging around with a doctor for, you know, a year and then saying, okay, you can start practicing now, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's probably how everything started. Some of them started hundreds of years ago. You know, it was just hang yeah. around with somebody and learn by osmosis. And and, um, and, and at that stage, well, like in the eighties, sorry. Yeah, and certainly I did do that. You know, yeah. with people like Rod, who I talked about, and Brian McLaren, and um, and. Uh, you know, Hilliard and those types of people, I was learning by osmosis, and I think that's a good way of doing it, but it doesn't help you with the underpinning knowledge. I'll just go back to Hilliard for a second. So Hilliard was the first guy that really introduced me to how important the science, the underlying science, the psychology, the behavioral science, the learning science, um, because as I said, he he was that way inclined um, and had a psychology degree and um, was studying at that time over in Texas as well. And so he really was, in my opinion, the guy that really pushed a, a proper scientific model. But I could say the same thing for a whole lot of people. Like, for example, um, certain people like Rod and Brian McLaren, they were kind of engineering kind of people. Okay. Rod was actually a cartographer by profession, worked for the government making maps and things like that. Right. So he was a very systematic um, engineering sort of base guy. And also, in the early days when I was a teenager, I did an apprenticeship um, as an electronics tech, but my boss was uh, an engineer, had three engineering degrees, mechanical, electrical, and electronic engineering, three separate degrees. He did two at the same time, um, he, but he was a bit of a mad scientist, crazy sort of dude, but, um, but certainly all these people sort of influenced me into a more scientific and more engineering based rather than an, an intuitive base. And the reason I mention that, Panos, is that when you sort of talked to me about the topics previously, you yeah. 
you mentioned the sort of the craft versus the profession model. So this was the dawning of this idea that um, this isn't simply something we should be just doing from osmosis. One person who's a skilled dog trainer training somebody else who's a skilled dog trainer without anything more, without any systems, without any uh, process, without any uh, design and engineering and structure and, and particularly without any of the sort of learning science and behavioural science behind it. So all of these things started to morph, you know, during this early period and into the 90s. So in 92, I think it was 92, 93, I ran the first professional dog trainers course that had run in Australia. Um, NDTF didn't exist at that stage. And I only ran it internally. So it was just for my own people. Um, and and then we ran that every year for a few years. And then sometime in the mid-90s, um, I don't remember exactly what year, but I'm going to say something like about 96. Um, so we're a few years in. Could have been 90. It was somewhere between 95 and 97. I should know that. But um, people got two things happened. One, we were starting to network more. People like um, Steve Austin and Gary Jackson and other professional trainers around the country. I mentioned those guys particularly because Gary was in Queensland, Steve was in Sydney, I was in Melbourne, Chris was here. Um, there was a few, you know, another guy in Adelaide, another guy in Perth, and those kind of guys, um, and and a, a crew of other people. Um, Brian McLaren, you know, um, and. I, Unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that about half of the people that I could mention are dead now because it was so long ago. Okay, so no. we're still, we're talking a long time ago, and a lot of those guys were pretty mature at that stage. Okay, um, Steve's still around and still a great trainer, but um, he's quite a bit older than me. I think Steve's ten years older than me, but. Um, Anyway, so we decided we should do something together, and that's when the NDTF started getting formed. But because we'd already been running the dog trainers course internally, let's say, not open to the public uh, for a few years before then, then once the NDTF started, we decided, well, let's open it to the public so as anybody from any source can get it. And that that's where the NDTF sort of came together as a combination of the you know the the professional trainers around Australia wanting to have an association together and also uh, as the basis of the education sort of program and every single one of those people were involved in you know building the early course and instructing on the course in one form or another um you know so yeah and um and that was sort of the first sort of organized collective i guess of dog training um in the ndtf and then that persisted for years and went through various metamorphoses, which we can get into as much detail as you decide to. But that also eventually led to the modern era, which is the CERT Academy, which is in some ways a sort of a modern reinvention of those original ideas, because somewhere along the path of that collective idea that was developing in the 90s, um, sort of went off track, shall I say, you know, so we, we sort of lost its path, I suppose, as things do, you know, they go off and uh, in different directions. But then it became apparent that there was people wanting to do that. And uh, and so then we moved into the development of the CERT Academy, which I guess we'll get to at some point. So, so currently, because um, you've sold, you guys sold the NDTF to, to another company. So, so now you were the founder, of, like you were one of the founders of getting that happening at the moment. You're not affiliated with, with the National Dog Trainers Federation and the CERT Academy, which is canine education, research and training. When did that um, get started? When did you start be making that um, accessible to the public? Sure. Okay. Let me go back just one step quickly. Okay. So 
NDTF starts mid nineties. Okay, um, course becomes uh, open to the public in the early two thousands. I think from memory, two thousand and three, we got the course nationally recognised under the government accreditation screen, the ASQA. Okay, um, that's when it became officially the Certificate Three in Dog Behaviour and Training. Up until then, we called it like the Professional Dog Trainers Course or something. Um, I'm not even sure that when we first set it up that the national record, the you know, back even before the NDTF, so back in the early 90s, I don't even know if the national recognition scheme existed then in that sort of format. It might have, you know, I don't remember, but uh, it's a long time ago. And, um, you know, I mean, you, of course, we're talking about some of the things I'm talking about here, you guys weren't born, right? So it's a long time ago. Yes. So, um, I'm not that young, mate. Yeah. Well, I wasn't 89, so I was about 86. Mm. Yeah, well, that's right. 89 is when I started getting serious about thinking, okay, we need professional trainers, course. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so the NDTF uh, became nationally recognised. Now, to, to become nationally recognised, you have to do it under an RTO, okay, Registered Training Organisation, which is like a private TAFE college for the people who don't know them, okay? Um, and so I teamed up with a with an RTO named Precise um, in 2003, thereabouts, in order to be able to get it nationally recognised. So there were sort of like two entities, the NDTF, which was us, who had the course, had the knowledge and everything, and then the RTO that has the infrastructure that you need to be able to run a nationally government-accredited course. Okay. Um, so, and then in the late 90s, uh, sorry, in the late uh, noughties, I should say, so I think 2009, I then sold the course to um, Precise, and uh, they've been running it ever since. I have stayed involved in the course as far as instructing and doing a bit of consulting for them, but you're you're quite right that, um, you know, I, I'm not uh, formally affiliated with them and uh, don't, don't have any ownership or any control over the organisation or anything like that. Um, I just – I still support them, as a lot of people in the industry do, okay? Yeah. Um, and I still do some instructing for them and consulting and various other things, just – course development bits and pieces and things so um they're setting up there um when i originally developed the course it had a tracking component in it as well um so as you'd know panos mm. uh, the the course is actually it's probably worth just giving you a bit of background on what the idea of the course was yeah, when i originally set the course up i kind of used it as a trade school model okay so uh if you do a trade built you know a carpenter or a electrician or something whatever um most people would know that you work with the master sort of four days a week and you go to school one day a week or you do block release you might do one week a month or something like that it, it varies but ju just as first approximation that'll do and that's kind of the way that we thought about it. We thought that the the course, I'll call it the NDTF course, but when I first set it up the NDTF didn't exist, but just so as we can give it a name. Um the NDTF course um was designed to be that sort of the learning theory behind the practice. It was never intended to be anything that you could just do standalone and become proficient. It was designed that you'd be working with a trainer or an organisation, could have been at a dog club, could have been at customs or quarantines or police or prisons or some other organisation or agency or something like that that was training dogs involved in dogs in some way, shape or form. And this was kind of like the trade school thing. And to a certain degree, I think that has persisted. I think there are a lot of people who are training with people. You, you talk 
the fact that Glenn was a mentor for you guys. I don't exactly know the timing, but it's quite hypothetical that you were teaming up with Glenn. You might have been training with him or with other people, and you thought, okay, you know, I'd like to, I need to learn a bit more of the theory, the underpinning knowledge, get a little bit of more information, and blah blah blah. So I'm going to go and do the NDTF course, and that's really the way that I set it up, you know, and and. Uh, it is fair to say, I don't think anybody would dispute me on this. In fact, I think most of the early people who were involved, many of the names I've already mentioned, would say, yeah, it was Boyd's baby and uh, he was the one who sets it up. I I've never heard anybody dispute that argument. So I certainly had a lot of support from a lot of the names that we've already discussed back in the day. Um, you know, guys like Steve Austin, for sure, was a absolutely really great supporter and uh you know did a lot of instructing and numerous other people including his wife vicky austin and um you know or, uh, many of those other people that we've, we've mentioned around the place they all gave support they gave knowledge they were open in their in their they, they thought it was a good thing um one of the things panos you and i have talked about before on a parallel line to this we we're talking about taking on um uh people to shadow you during private consults or whatever and a lot of people are scared of that because they think oh if i train these people i'm training my competition you I, just for the record guys panos is not one of those people in fact he's the opposite and um he's been terrific in taking on um, these people and mentoring them and letting them shadow and sees the benefit of it so we still had that problem back in the day that some people were thinking about that dynamic um, whereby, you know, really, do you want me to give my knowledge away and train other people and I train in my competition? Uh, so anyway, it, that's, that is what it is. Sure. But anyway, so that that's where the NDTF went. Um, when I sold it over to those guys, um, for all intents and purposes, the original function of the NDTF as a representative organisation and stuff sort of died in that in the noughties um, because when I sold that stuff across to the RTO, the RTO weren't dog people there, and so therefore they weren't interested in having the NDTF as a representative body for the dog training industry and they were just they, they ran courses they're an NDTF sorry they're an RTO and they yeah. have other on their scope not dog related or animal related things they just run other courses most RTOs have many courses on their scope just think of like a mini TAFE college a TAFE college could have 300 courses on its scope okay yeah. um across numerous domains and um th th that rto is nowhere near to that level but um but th you get the idea okay yeah. <laughs> now having said that they still use dog trainers and consultants and stuff as instructors and stuff so it's you know it, it's just run by a dog uh, by, sorry by an rto by a training organization so that sort of left a bit of a void and that left the window open for the cert academy which comes back to your question okay so the the ndtf course is running and remember i've said that it was designed as a trade school model it's only a cert three level okay um and that was a problem for me to be honest with you during the years during the say the from the beginning of the 21st century in around 2000 and particularly from 2003 when we got it nationally recognized we thought we could market this overseas but with a lot of problems marketing it to overseas so we did do some training for japanese um and a little bit of stuff for um, some middle east countries and some european people came over and stuff but it was all pretty small scale we didn't run a lot um, we ran a couple of courses for the japanese but because it was only a cert three level <clears throat> they in in most countries around the world a certificate level doesn't 
isn't really regarded um, as a really formal qualification. You know, it's more like a pre-qualification. Um, it, it's certainly not regarded as a diploma or a degree or anything like that, okay? Um, and if you listen to a lot of American podcasts and you hear the people on there, a lot of those people have masters or PhDs or something and... Um, or so they have a, a sort of a higher level of education. But I don't have a problem with that because it was only designed as an entry-level course. It was designed as a foundational course. It was designed to, as like a trade school model to work with other people. It was never designed to be a standalone, complete course. Uh, and if it was, then it would have been a diploma-led. Yeah. Um, and then it would have been a lot more expensive and taken a lot of time and stuff like that. Um, and just as a little bit of a defence, and I don't want to get into this too much, but I, I'll just say one thing. Uh, if you've never been involved in the National Recognition Scheme, okay, under ASQA, which is the government body that um, looks after TAFE colleges and RTOs and um, accredits nationally recognised qualifications and courses and things like that, um, they are, you know, to be blunt, ball breakers. You know, you could argue that that's their job. They've got to do that. But they, they are, they make life pretty difficult and you have mm -hmm. to jump a whole lot of hoops <clears throat> so anytime you're doing a nationally recognized course and you feel like there's an incredible amount of bureaucracy and it seems very clunky and stuff well most of that is because of the government regulations okay okay enough said on that but in uh, saying that so, sorry real quick is that i guess it could be frustrating as well that you know you have courses whether they're elaborate or entry level but if there's no actual requirement to be to have any qualification to do the the profession of dog training that, that does did, did that have any issues like did that kind of change the trajectory of of the the course and of course we can even get into like should we even have a mandatory sort of certification or, or some sort of qualification to actually be a dog trainer what are your thoughts on that yeah we'll come back to the cert academy i'd probably rather leave that cert academy discussion for we'll a come back to that for yeah, sure yeah i think this is a good way to to segue off here for a second Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, look, I think eventually every serious profession has some sort of regulation about it. You know, um, you can be a home mechanic if you want to, okay, and work on cars. Nobody can really stop you. Um, but we do recognise that a, a qualified mechanic is something different, and um, and then you could you have a level up from there, say a licensed roadworthy tester, okay. So certainly you would have to be a qualified mechanic or engineer in order to become a licensed roadworthy tester, and so on and so forth, okay. Now that's already happening to a certain degree in certain states and stuff. So for example, in Victoria. Um, you can't use an e-collar, okay, um, unless you were either um, a certified dog, a qualified dog trainer, like an NDTF qualified dog trainer, or you are under the uh, overseeing, the auspice, if you will, of the um, of a professional dog trainer. So you can't just go out yourself and use the collar. You have to be, you know, under some sort of supervision or something of a of an NDTF, say, qualified trainer, okay. Um, I don't think it just has to be NETF. I think there's other um, cr other credentials that you could have uh, to do that. But the main one that most people would be doing is that. So I guess that's a bit like a roadworthy certificate kind of model for just just talking about it for an RT, right, for an e-collar. Um, but those things are already there. And then there are other things that, that they can't do. For example, um, 
as an expert witness and things like that, um, it would be very hard to uh, get up in in front of the courts and make an argument when you don't have the na- the only nationally recognised qualification as a trainer. Now, some people might get around that because they've done training in another particular area or whatever. Um, you know, they might have been a unit with the police or customs quarantines or something other than that, which, okay, is arguably fair enough. They've sort of done their own internal qualifications or whatever. But um, so those kind of things happen progressively. But as to make it a an across-board um, thing, uh, say like an electrician, you can't practice an, as an electrician, not even in your own house, really. You're not even allowed to install your own PowerPoint in your own house. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get to that stage um, because people are going to just want to be able to train their own dog, aren't they? Okay. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the industry, if it wants to be taken seriously and wants to be taken uh, seriously by the public, but also seriously by its peers, people in other professions and organisations, you know, I'd like to be able to go to a conference where there's uh, clinical psychologists, uh, engineers and uh you know, people, technicians, for example, who have formal education, formal qualifications, and be looked upon as equals to those people, as, you know, proper professionals with proper background, which then leads back to the discussion, Panos, that we briefly touched on before, the difference between a craft and a true profession, okay? Yeah. Um, people don't think of clinical psychology or medicine or engineering or electronics tech or uh, electrician or uh, carpenter or whatever. Uh, you know, they're professions. Okay? You know, we don't – a craft is sort of um, – you can be good at something, but it kind of means you're a bit of just sort of an artisan who does their own tinkering, so to speak. Um, and you – I am continually surprised – with the majority of trainers who get involved, how little real knowledge they actually have. They yeah. have they have some mechanistic knowledge. They can get there and they can actually go through the motions of training a dog, but they really don't understand what they're doing and therefore they don't have the flexibility to be able to adapt and to understand why things are happening and why they're not happening um, and so on and so forth. Another point that I, I'll just bring up, with regards to the NDTF course, it was always designed as just a very sort of generic course. It was never designed to be uh, train people to be obedience trainers, certainly not to be behavioural consultants who are, you know, dealing with complex higher order classes of behaviour like, um, you know, fear, anxiety, <clears throat> separation problems, dominance, aggression, you know, and problem, you know, more serious, as Lindsay refers to them, higher order classes of behaviour. Um, and so Lindsay was a, another... Um, great mentor later, okay, I started connecting with Lind- Lindsay in the noughties, in the late noughties. We brought him out actually to Australia in 2010, but by that stage I'd been talking to him for a couple of years. Um, we used to have these marathon phone conversations. We used to get these little cards that you could uh, you'd buy and go, let me have cheap calls to the States. Um, I don't know if those sort of th- things exist. but I wouldn't even need them now, would you? But I I would put a different SIM card in my phone because that had some sort of, you know, it was some sort of. I remember that. Yeah, Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) But it it wasn't unusual for Lindsay and I to have two or two and a half or three hour phone conversations. And um, And the days before podcasts. Oh, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was just him and I, and um, yeah, exactly. And they, they were lengthy, and uh, Glenn was floating around in those days, and you know he would uh, come in the room into my office, and I'd be waving him off again because he was working with me at that stage, and um, yeah, and so th- those were the the sort of dynamics. Um, so when, when we're talking about like the the craft and the and the the science, you know, even like the actual application of the training, you know, I found a lot of people that have done loads of research and they've done and they've done a course and 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 they're learning, even if it's from NDTF or wherever, and and they understand the words, they know the the science, but when it comes to seeing it in in reality in front of you, just like a dodgy GP, like yeah, they know the words, but. I, I think a lot of the times they forget to ask the right questions so they can find the real sim like to actually understand, well, why do you have the symptoms? How can we fix you? You can go by the book, but the book may not always give you the answer. You need the craft, you need the experience, along with understanding the psychology and 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 behavior, you know, and, and then merging those together and then and then actually trying to be functional so you can get some 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 actual real results. That 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 is actually what we call dog training. And that's where you want a course to be able to give both sides, but really the experience and and that through that osmosis is where everything can kind of click in. And um, and I just think a lot of newer trainers are coming from from theory into training, where like for me um, in particular and, and a lot of others came from doing the work, not knowing words, but then learning the words and the theory. I, I, I feel like you can marry it better with the craft and the, and the experience and then marrying it with the with the theory we're having the theory and then trying to find the experience i think like it's just a different route i haven't gone that route but i find a lot of people are there at the moment any thoughts of that yeah well uh, <laughs> um yeah how long have you got um uh, yeah I, I have a lot of thoughts on that um and and you know to be fair it's kind of i'll, I'll say two things about when you say any thoughts on that i mean firstly Personally, I consider it my job to have thoughts on that. Okay, that's my role in the industry. Many people would look at, certainly it's reasonable to say that I'm one of the sort of elder statesmen, I suppose, in the industry. I'm well over 40 years now. Um, I did start when I was young. As I said, I started as a teenager and stuff. Um, So um, 17 is when I started training. Um, And... And certainly by the time I was 19, I was doing it professionally, okay? And, you know, that's when I was teaming up with Rod and when we were training at these places and I was doing it commercially and working, you know, getting work with agencies, doing security work and stuff like that with my dog. Anyway, so I think it's my job, but also, um, you know, it's important that we have some people who are thinking about those kind of things within the industry and actively, proactively doing something about those points. So I largely agree with you. I will bring up a couple of historical things here just to clarify. Okay. The term craft, okay. The reason I've chosen to use the term craft versus profession, and I would like people to adopt this um, because it's it's a good way of looking at it. It came from Bob Bailey. Now, that's a name that, again, it's a blast from the past. Uh, Bob's still alive, but again, a very old man now. He'd be well in his 80s. So let me give you a quick history lesson on Bob Bailey, okay? Um, back in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, he became a biologist, um, I think, from memory, um, and he joined 
the military and did a degree with the military. You know, the Americans have that system where you can join the military and you can get free college, okay? And he did that back in the early days, okay? Um, then what happened is that in the, I think, late 1950s, yeah, in the late 1950s, the Americans decided that they wanted to start a marine mammal program, training marine mammals to support the Navy. You know. And... Um, and the idea was they were using them for things like mine, to find mines, to search out mines, or maybe to find submarines and for early warning systems. And it doesn't really matter what they were doing. They had all these weird and wacky ideas about that they could use marine mammals, mainly dolphins, um, to do these things. So they put the word out that they wanted an educator, somebody to run that process, okay? So Bob had been in the Navy um, and he had a biology degree. Other than that, he didn't have much qualification. But as Bob puts it, I was probably the best they could find because it was a long time ago. Not many people had both those sort of qualifications and maybe nobody else wanted the job because you had to join the Navy. You had to go back into the Navy and all that kind of stuff. He'd left the Navy by then, okay? Um, and so he started doing that, but he was, he, he'd be the first to admit he was pretty much out of his depth. I mean, it's starting up the you know the defense department's marine mammal program from scratch and he's a pretty junior sort of a guy that's just got a biology degree you know like yeah. you can imagine how overwhelming that would have been <laughs> i can um, only imagine yeah exactly it sounds so, like something from a movie like a superhero movie you're gonna get the dolphins to look for the mines yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah <laughs> and um but it actually happened yeah so yeah. cool well, in fact, there's a whole lot of weird and wacky stories that go around what those guys did back in the early days. Like, I'll, I'll go back one step further, okay? So, because I'm about to pair that up with the Braylons, okay? Um, uh, Marion and Keller Braylon. Okay, so let me go back one step further. It's nice to have a quick history lesson. I'll promise I'll make it quick. Okay. So, take your time. Sorry, one second. I think, Luke, your mic keeps bumping your shirt or something's happening and it keeps oh, making sorry. a noise. That's sorry, all right. Guys, yeah. yeah. All good. So, back in the 1930s, um, I'm going to call them Marion and Keller Brayland, although they they weren't married at that time. So Marion, I don't remember her maiden name, but she wasn't Brayland then. Okay. But in the 1930s, they were students of B.F. Skinner. Skinner. Okay. You know, Skinner's box. Everybody knows Skinner. Okay. Oh, yeah. So um, at Harvard, uh, he had his laboratory there. I think, I'm pretty sure it was at Harvard. He was at two different places, Minnesota maybe or something as well, or so, some other place. But I think pretty sure by that stage he was at Harvard. And um, I can't remember his history too well as far as what university is at, so forgive me if somebody's screaming down the microphone. No, he was at Harvard first, then he went to the other one. I can't remember. Okay. Google. Uh, yeah, but who cares, right? Um, pretty sure it was at Harvard at that stage. Um, Marion and Keller um, were doing their PhDs, I think, with him or whatever. Um, World War II broke out, 1939, was when the you know World War Two started. For the Americans, it didn't start until forty one, but certainly for the rest of the world, for England, Australia, it started in thirty nine. Um, and shortly thereafter, they got recruited by the War Department to do things. So you think that the marine mammal thing is weird, okay? <laughs> Amongst other things, but the most thing, the main research that they were doing, this is Skinner and the Braylands, okay? The Braylands as Skinner's support staff, you know, um, doing the heavy lifting, so to speak, they were training pigeons to guide missiles That's into right. Germany, yeah. okay, because um, we didn't have guided missiles those days, but we had homing pigeons, okay, so the idea was that you train homing pigeons and put them in the missiles and they would guide the missile onto the homing location. It still blows my mind that they could do that. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, it, it never actually got deployed. I don't, as far as mm. I know, we never actually sent a missile with a pigeon in it. But, but they trained them to, right? Yeah, that's right. The prisoners. Yeah, oh. They were pretty serious about it. Okay. Yeah, right. Anyway, so World War Two ends, and um, for one reason or another, the Braylands and Skinner go their own way. And um, if, if people are, if one thing that people listening, if they're a bit learned, for example, if they've done the NDTF course or something, they're probably familiar with a, a very famous paper written by the Braylands called The Misbehaviour of Organisms. So the term instinctive drift was um, first put forward by the Braylands in that paper, okay? Um, and The Misbehaviour of Organisms is a play on words from Skinner's earlier book from, I think, 1938, roughly, or something, called The Behaviour of Organisms, and his argument in The Behaviour of Organisms that everything can be modified by its consequences, uh, primarily by reinforcement, but reinforcement and, and corrective pro protocols, you know, appetitive and aversive consequences can shape the behaviour of all, all organisms, including humans, okay? And that was basically Skinner's behaviourism in, in a nutshell. So, um, sorry about the extended hi history. No, please, it's amazing, I love it. So in the, in the misbehaviour of organisms, which is still readily available, you can download it on a Google Scholar, you probably just download it. It's only, you know, four or five pages long from memory. Um and uh, it's it's a worse it's still a famous very famous paper from back in the day. Anyway, the Braylands went off and did their own thing, and they started an organisation called ABE, um, Animal Behaviour Enterprises, and they started training all sorts of animals, dozens. In fact, it eventually became more than a hundred different species and thousands of animals for all sorts of things. They were doing TV commercials. They were training everything from insects to pigs to otters to you name it, okay? And that's where the misbehaviour of organisms came around because they found that there was problems, which we won't get into now. They, you can read the article for yourself, um, maybe for another day. Yeah. Anyway, the bottom line is that we're now into the 50s and they're very well established as animal trainers. So when Bob Bailey, who uh, is now working for the Navy training marine mammals, needs help. So they get the Braylands in as consultants and the um, to help him out. And they develop this really strong friendship and he he sort of mentors, even though he's actually running the program, he realises that the Braylands have much more experience in training animals. And so he and Keller is a bit of a genius and so is Marion, to be honest. Yeah, they were both brilliant people. And they, um, yeah, so he learned a lot from them. And then come the end of the 1950s, the Braylands and Bob Bailey are working together. The Navy program's going along. Bob's coming towards the end of his time. And then early 60s, Bob's diagnosed with cancer. He's not going to make it, terminal cancer. Um, so they recruit him across and they say, you know, when your time's up with the Navy, in um, why don't you come across? And I think in 1963 um, or thereabouts, he left the Navy and came across at, at about the same time that Keller died from cancer. But they knew well in advance they'd recruited him across. So then. Bob Bailey and um, Marion um, Brayland, uh, they kept running ABE and ABE and trained numerous animals all over. They were hugely successful. They had organ you know, trainers all over the country. They were training animals, dozens and dozens of species of animals, including everything from insects to otters and everything you could possibly imagine in between to do. All I want to find out what they were teaching insects to do. Do you know? Give me one example. Do you know? Teaching what, sorry? In insects. Um, 
to do simple things like activate devices or move things from A to B or so cool. things like that. Yeah. Wow. Um, they wrote a book um, uh, called Animal Behaviour. Just bear with me one second. Yeah. Sorry, guys. But, um, no, it's, it's part of the to read some of these books, Panos. Yeah, I'm writing it down now. Teach an insect to move things and to press buttons. <laughs> take your time. Take your time. That's fascinating stuff. You have to. You have to be really out there to be thinking. Let's let's hey, go you down. Know what that we path. should do today? We should train some insects. We should train some. <laughs> in saying that, I bought the bug assault gun the other um, yesterday. Oh, came the salt one. Oh man, I'm go I'm, it's so addictive. Is it? The I'm smashing flies. I'm smashing <laughs> flies. Left, right, Does it work? Center. It works, man. From a meter away, it obliterates flies. It That's like, crazy. You, and, and you the, just put salt in it, right? Just table salt. That's crazy. Yeah. So and it's just like up. air pressure, is it? Yeah. It's a little pump, pump it, action. Yeah. yeah, it's a little yeah. pump action gun. And um, I lined up the site last night, so I'm running around. So so while people are training the flies, I was killing oh, them. At, in, uh, in, at group class? Or? No, I was in my backyard. Because oh. um, the flies in, in my house, like when they do come around, they can- um, give my dog fly bite and oh. bite their ears and stuff, and it's a bit of an issue. My house is so clean, my backyard is clean, but the is flies. There, is there like um, trees near like the beach, fruit man. or something? Yeah, I guess. Near Have you got beach, the fly yeah. baits from you know the, yeah. the 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 bucket one? Yeah, I've got that. You got that I've one? Got, yeah, and it's gross. That works really well for me. Yeah, it does. Yeah, guys, I can't find it straight off the top. I thought it was in my. That's all good. You'll send it to us later, and we'll put it up yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, animal behavior, the Braylands, okay? Um, Keller and, and um, Marion Brayland, um, B-R-E-L-A-N-D, um, animal behavior. But if you're going to buy it, um, get the revised edition because years later, I think in 2016, and that's a long time later because the original book is from the 1960s, um, and so, you know, like 50 years later or whatever it was, um, Bob re-released the book with a lot more photos and historical information and a really nice forward. Um, but to, to round up that story, okay, so Bob was working with the Braylands. He then came across, ran ABA for years, um, him and Marion. Um, happy ending to that story. Um, they ended up getting married, even though she was quite a bit older than him. Um and uh, I met them in the 90s. So I did, um, they were doing that. You might have heard of these um, chicken training things where you train chickens to peck keys and walk through mazes and do pots and stuff like that. You can find yeah. plenty of that on YouTube and stuff. Okay, so th those people who do that are the ancestors, if you like, of um, the Braylands and the Baileys, okay, because that, that they were the people who originally started it. And when they started the first thing, I think it was in 97, I went, I was in the States and I went and did this two-day um, chicken training. It was, you know, using clickers because um, th these people are the inventors, you know, Skinner and, and the Braylands and stuff are the inventors of the clicker. A lot of people attribute it to um, to Karen Pryor and stuff. Well, she learned it from those people, okay? So, um, but she kind of is the godmother of clicker training for dogs because she brought it to our thing. But mm. it, fairness she just simply learned it from those other people and um they were using those exact devices i've actually got a the direct reference of uh, of uh, skinner using clickers in like 1947 or something yeah, wow. like that, um where it talks about you know they called them crickets then because crickets. During the, <laughs> yeah in world war ii the, the, ironically it's another weird story and i'll make this one really quick but in world war ii um 
when they we were doing the towards the end of particularly towards the end of it you know around d-day and stuff when we landed in normandy and it was a sort of like the final invasion force the big you know final hit um that sort of largely ended the war in europe um and they to make sure if they were because there were so many people landing there was guys parachuting in coming in by boat coming in from here coming in from there and they worried a lot about a friendly fire and stuff so they gave all the allied troops all the americans the australians the um the brits and canadians and all of the allies right many others so apologies to all the other people uh the numerous other countries that uh were part of the allies during that time um they gave them clickers okay which they called crickets okay and if you heard somebody walking in the bush or, you know, somebody there at night and you didn't know if they were a friend or an enemy, you would press your clicker yeah. and, and they would uh, respond with their clicker. Okay? Mm, that's clicker. crazy. Yeah. And so that developed. And I wonder sort of Pavlovian conditioning that um, happened over time. Maybe when the first, um, over time, you know, someone's training their dog, clicker, clicker, are they going to have feelings of war? Interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. You, you, you're not wrong. It de mm. death could be a Pavlovian effect. That's right. I never post traumatic stress or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, notwithstanding, they were using it, and and so they got married and you know trained lots of dogs. But anyway, Bob was the first one who introduced me um, to this idea of craft versus profession, and that which is where we started this conversation. And so the idea of the craft, as Bob puts it, and I think it's a fair way of putting it, is that he uses he attributes the word craft to more meaning hobby okay as opposed to professional okay um so he wouldn't use the term craftsman because that does imply somebody who builds beautiful furniture or something yeah. like that okay um he's talking about it as do you have a scientific basis are you formally learning are you applying technology and so and the word craft if you think about it you know people in engineering or clinical psychology etc sort of peer organ peer uh professions i'm using those two because i see a lot of you know technicians um engineers clinical psychologists they're doing you know I, i'm just trying to create peer like i wouldn't call a lawyer a peer qualification to what we do but i yeah. would you know engineering we're doing structure a lot of the people including for example bob called himself a um biological systems engineer and things like that you know mm -hmm. and yeah. they use those terms okay they call their their people technicians behavioral technicians and yeah. stuff so they used engineering terminology for the training of the animals and stuff like that, which is a good way of doing it. And that's why Bob sort of differentiates between the craft and the profession, which brings us in. So when I'm using the word craft, I mean hobbyist, okay? Okay, yeah. In the tradition of Bob Bailey, okay? I, um, so if I was using the terminology that you used before, how you've got to learn the theory stuff, which we all agree is important, but you also have to learn the practical stuff. Um I would not call the practical stuff the craft. I would call that. The, I would call that the technical skills. Okay? Yes, for sure. And that model already exists, and that's called an apprenticeship. Okay, so mm -hmm. you do one day a week, or one week a month, doing the theory, and you may do homework and stuff like that. And the rest of the time, you're working with the technician, the master, or whatever. Okay, and they are teaching you the mechanistic technical skills of the equation, and that's the way that the model of moving forward and to be honest i was even sort of applying that model back in the day with the uh, ndtf course but it's certainly the model that uh, cert academy and, and things moves forward and one of the reasons why it's a good model is it's consistent it's congruent with how other 
professions, our peers, work. Okay. Yeah. So we should why would we reinvent? And by our peers, I mean technical trades like electricians and um and as I said, I was electronics tech and other, you know, there are many, many good technical apprenticeships that you can do or technical um, diplomas and things that you can do in technical areas, you know, where, you know, electronics tech, where I'm not talking about where you're working on a computer. I'm talking about when you're working in the computer. Okay. Yeah. So you're working on the wiring and the the technology and the, the hardware. Okay, the the proper right. hardware sort of side of things, which in dog training, we can analogize the hardware is the physical training of the dog. Okay. Yeah. You're actually out there and you've got to learn the timing and the moves and the techniques and where to hold your hands and how to move and all of that kind of stuff. Couldn't agree with you more. Okay. Those are the technical skill aspects and you do need both. Um, and that's an acquired skill. So you need a lot of practice. And I, I use the word practice reservedly because I prefer to use the word rehearsal, which is sort of being defined as practice with effective feedback. And the mm. best effective feedback is, as you pointed out, is like a mentor. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly what you guys did with Glenn, but I imagine at times you were doing something, Glenn was there and said, no, no, you've got your hand in the wrong place or you should do this. And he would be the first to tell you, I've heard him talk about it on his podcast on multiple occasions, and many people have come back to me and said, yes, he says it regularly. He would say, you know, when I was training with Boyd, he, you know, I would do this and he would tell me, no, don't do that. And, you know, da, 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 da. And I tell the story of Glenn when he was training this dog uh, as he was learning he was already a fair way along and probably been with me for maybe a couple of years or something and he was learning as this timing exercise on this particular like search and rescue activity on when to reward the dog when we were getting the indications that we wanted you know and this dog was doing this drill and the dog gave the behavior and Glenn didn't get the timing right. He missed the timing um, to reward the dog at exactly the right time for the behavior we were trying to get okay and I went to tell him and I went Mate, and he goes, he goes, I know. He goes, I missed that by like about a second, didn't I? Uh, and you could see Glenn had realised that he now at least knew exactly what to do, yeah. but he just needed to practice it to be able to get the timing right, okay? <laughs> so, um, but but I could see that was a, a change, um, a shift there in in his uh, comprehension. It's That's now, awesome. I get it. I get exactly what I need to do, and I know what I need to do, and I know when I need to do it. Just because, and there's an old saying, you know, knowing how to do something is very different from being able to do it, okay? Yeah. I was going to say a different saying going, feeling is understanding. So like when you feel it, you know it, like it's inside you rather than thinking it. Like you think you know, you understand. It's a different to knowing it. It's, it's, do you, it's do you think that's the whole based. like art art versus science thing as well? It's kind of similar, right? Like, maybe it's also, it could also be tied into the sort of conscious competence versus unconscious competence. Mm, yeah. Sort of you know, the four levels of competence. Right. Interesting. And, yes. Yeah. I think you can get to a point where it's unconscious competence. I will say, because I think mm -hmm. of training uh, and behaviour and consultancy, as you know, Panos, we've had this discussion at, at other times. Um, I, I arguably, look, it's good to have different opinions along spectrums within, within different frameworks, okay? So there are might be some people. I, I had one of my um, people, um, we won't get into names because I don't want to you know, thing, but they they were there was a one day seminar put on by a guy who was a a bit of a 
he was connected with me back in the early days, did a little bit of training with me, sort of indirectly. He was training with another one of those names that I've mentioned before. So he inadvertently connected with me, even though he wasn't directly connected with me. Anyway, he's been trained for quite a long time and he's a pretty competent trainer. Anyway, at the beginning of the seminar that he ran that day, he said, I follow the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. You know, I really want to make things as simple as I can. Now, I said to my guy who went to that seminar, I would have walked out at that time because there's a, I have various problems with that. Firstly, it's not simple and we should stop trying to pretend that it is, okay? Nobody in engineering or computer science or genetics or medicine uh, says, oh, this is simple. We just need to simplify it. Nobody thinks that, okay? In fact, all of the top people are exactly saying the opposite. Guys, we need to embrace the complexity. We need to acknowledge that it's unbelievably complex. I did genetics at Melbourne Uni and like a course there at, at genetics on dog um, dog breeding and genetics under Rolf Bielhartz, who was a very famous geneticist back in the day. Um, Rolf's still around. I ironically, he now has dementia and he has a support dog for his dementia, ah, which is fantastic, you know. And talk about going full circle, you know. Anyway, um, so, yeah, the when you look at the overall dynamics of what we're talking about, um, it, it's a technical skill. It, it, there's a lot of science. There's a lot of technology. There's a lot of technical skill, which takes a lot of time to learn and then a long time to master, as you guys have said. Um, and also, going back into the point that you guys just made there, uh, is that because when you're training a dog to do something reasonably sophisticated, like technical obedience, you know, sort of high level obedience, uh, but certainly not only that, there are many aspects, many training activities, being a decoy would be another activity. Um, there's often a lot of moving parts. We can agree on that, can't we? You know, mm -hmm. you worry about what you know what you're doing where your hands are where your body is what movements are trying to get your timing perfect you're also trying to relate to where the dog is and you, you know, if you're trying to be technical about this you're worried about different body parts and which thing should i be prior prioritizing and should i reinforce this behavior now because i'm getting something that i like here but at the same time i'm getting something i don't like somewhere else okay i'm getting good focus but the dog's back ends completely not where i want it and if i reward it now if i use my mark now um maybe the dog will interpret it that it's getting rewarded for the back end position rather than the focus. Certainly a lot of moving parts. It's totally hundred percent. Okay? So the only way to manage that is to develop a lot of unconscious competence around a lot of the fundamental things. So as those things can be taken care of themselves and you can just focus on one thing at a time to give you a simple real world analogy, driving a car when you first start driving, if you have to learn to drive and change gears, if you're in a manual car and you had to navigate to get to a place like follow your GPS or in back in the day, read a map at the same Too time, virtually yeah. impossible. Every time you're going to navigate, you're going to have to pull over to the side of the road, check your navigation, and then because you can't concentrate on those things at once, you need conscious competence for both driving the car and for navigating, okay? But you eventually you get to the point where the car effectively drives itself. You have unconscious competence and your, your non-conscious mind can take care of the driving of the car. You can just change gears, brake, slow down. We all had experience where you barely remember even being in a certain place how did i get here you know you can be talking to people you can be doing it's unconscious competence you're just doing things as you go and therefore if you have to navigate you can put your consciousness into the navigation skills okay or your consciousness into having a conversation but even then 
you have to breach it sometimes because we all know the circumstance where you're talking to somebody on the phone. Of course, it's hands-free um, when you're driving. But then you come to a difficult intersection where you have to maybe turn right against the traffic or something like that. It's it's a complex manoeuvre with a lot of moving parts. And the person on the other end of the phone or the person next to you, you stop talking, okay? Now, if they're a driver, if they're an experienced driver, if in the middle of driving and they know you're driving in traffic, <clears throat> if all of a sudden mid-sentence it just stops, the other person at the under the end of the phone, if they're an experienced driver, knows okay. what's going on, even yeah. at the unconscious level. They don't go, you there, mate? Hello? Have I lost you? You know, no. That, that, no, no, he's driving to a roundabout or he's trying to do a right-hand turn against True. traffic, okay? But to a person who's not an experienced driver, who doesn't have that knowledge, they will be going, are you there, mate? Are, mm -hmm. Have I lost you? You know, no, no, I'm just concentrating. And that's the difference between if the person's sitting next to you in the car, because if they're sitting next to you in the car, they see your circumstance and yeah. they understand that the, the conversation will ebb and flow according to the complexity of the environment at the time. Um, and they can adapt. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are against people talking on the phone, even if it is hands-free, because it is distracting you having a conversation, so you're not there, but the other person can't appreciate it. Well, because um, we truly can't multitask, right? Is that like... That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to... You, only, you can only think of one thing at the same time. Well, it's task switching. It's not... Task possible. switch. Yeah, true. Some true. people can task switch very rapidly yeah. uh, and move back and forth, but you literally can't be, you know... Doing two things at the same time. Do things, yeah. Well, mm. two cognitive processes at the same time. Oh, yeah. You can walk and talk at the same time, or you can scratch your head like I just did at the same time. That That's mm -hmm. not a problem. But if you've got two cognitive processes going on, yeah, you have to task switch. Of course, that can be done very rapidly, but it's still going to be distracting and going to be suboptimal. Anyway, mm. it's the craft thing, just to wrap that up, okay? So for my mind, there are the technical skills okay, that you have to both learn and then master through rehearsal, which means practice with effective feedback. The best feedback is with a mentor. Um, the second best feedback is with another peer, somebody who can just sort of give you mirror feedback sort of thing. Um, the next feed, uh, another good way of getting effective feedback would be to watch videos of yourself, um, get somebody to video it or look in a mirror. So we do a lot of work with our people. We've got a big mirror that they you know, can look at like a big full-size mirror and they can have the dog next to them and that way they can be just watching in the mirror instead of watching what the dog's doing. They can see the position of the dog and the movements of the dog and things like that. So they're getting a feedback, feedback independent. They don't need a third party to be able to do that. Kind of like um, when you're, you're at the gym and you want to make, obviously put the ego aside, but like making sure that you're actually doing the right exercise, right? Perfect analogy. Yeah. I agree. I, I couldn't agree more. That's a great yeah. analogy. I'm going to use that. Can I? Can I? You're welcome. I, it's I'll yours. It, right? it only works with the shirt off, right? <laughs> That's why I said put the ego aside. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. isn't it funny if you're a bit of a, a, a gym junkie and stuff, and I, I've trained in the gym all my life and stuff like that, um, and still do. Um, you know, to, to an outsider, to somebody, they probably look at somebody looking in the mirror when they're doing stuff. And this guy, he's always looking in the mirror when he's doing his uh, mm. sets and stuff like that. But to somebody who's experienced, they would be saying, no, no, there's, there definitely is benefit in a lot of techniques, especially if it's something you haven't done for a while or you're doing a variation mm. on a theme. Form. It is form. You're, you're practicing your form. And that comes back to, you know, we know the old saying about perfect practice, right? You know, mm -hmm. proper pre preparation prevents per um Performance. performance. Perfect practice is what you need to do. You don't just want to practice. You want to practice as perfect as you can. But practice without feedback can be 
you know, hit and miss. Yes, it really yeah. can be. And, uh, and it's got to be effective feedback. Mm-hmm. And the best effective feedback, of course, is a mentor standing right there doing that. I get people to do to give me feedback all the time when I'm doing things because I can't see me and I'm prioritising things in my mind. So yeah. I will do something and I will then say to somebody, and I often, we do a huge amount of video, a huge amount of videoing, and... Um, Literally, I mean, just to tell you how frequently this is, the last time I videoed myself with the intent of looking at my form and reviewing it and discussing it was this week, okay? Mm-hmm. So that, that's how frequently it is. It's not like I haven't done it for months or anything like that, okay? and well, Especially to- if you're making content and trying to put it out there, you're going to watch it and be like, ah, I, wish I, w- I really wish I didn't do that. And as evidence to that, guys, I will actually send you the video. Okay, it's me working a dog named Ruby, a Malinois, female Malinois. Okay, not I'm not just telling stories for the thing, and I've got the video, and I'll flick it up to you, mate. You'll enjoy watching it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love that. And so, well, let's segue, like, because I know we can go like forever, right? But let's segue into like the Cert Academy, and then how do we address the 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 craft and into the profession and then how is it that we you know get that mentorship and like and what's the learning process and like you know just kind of giving the, the audience a bit of a overview of like what cert academy kind of brings to the table great okay well I, let's start with a snapshot and then you guys can direct me on which ones you want to deal with Thanks. so the main sort of concept around the cert academy is would be sort of um uh threefold okay the first one we've already alluded to to bring our industry up to sort of the similar dynamic to our peer industries, okay, which I've already mentioned, technicians, engineers, clinical psychologists. I'm saying clinical psychologists because they're treating behavioural problems in humans and a lot of people uh, like you guys and and many others, us, um, we're we're sort of playing loosely clinical psychologists for docs, okay? Mm. and some people are doing that pretty much entirely, like a lot of veterinary behaviourists. You wouldn't call them dog trainers per se. You would just call them, um, uh, you know, behavioural consultants, so to speak, which is kind of like the dog equivalent of um, of a clinical psychologist in in many ways. Okay, I'm not saying it's a perfect analogy, but it, it'll do. Totally. Uh, so, yeah. So we need to, if we're going to be taken serious, we've got to have serious education qualification research and moving forward as a serious profession shifting away from the craft not to take nothing away from the craft people who enjoy it they do it as a hobby or whatever um but they need and, and you can do mechanics as a hobby as well engineering as a hobby you know there are plenty of hobbyists who work around work in their own garage and you know they might have a lathe at home and they like building things and drilling things that's great i love it okay that's craft okay but those people are not building the planes that we are flying across the, the Pacific Ocean in. I they would are hope not, not building the bridges that are going across gorges. Can we agree on that, right? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I told Assuming you, we want those planes to stay in the sky, yeah. We do, right? And, yes. and more and more, that's the way the world works. I mean, we can look at the engineering marvels, some of those magnificent bridges and, and uh, tunnels and machinery and things, and just go, my god i mean compare that to the knowledge and the technology of dog training and you go oh my god these guys are a light years ahead of us you know aren't they okay no oh, yeah. but um okay so that's one is to is to elevate the industry relating to that is that 
unlike, say, the NDTF and other programs that are run, and there's some other good ones, Stephen Vicky Austin's course is a really nice course as well, similar sort of dynamic to the NDTF course, and there are various other people who've uh, run stuff. You know, Mike Ellis runs some nice co- programs and, and the like mm-hmm. over in the States, and numerous other people, um, you know, Terry Bradshaw, and I, I, I'm not, I'm just giving you examples. The majority of those courses are all, to one degree or another, at the same level. They're designed as sort of fundamental level developmental courses, okay? Um, The CERN Academy became, and this will become more apparent once I get to point three. So point one is raise the industry standards and move toward the peers. Point one is, uh, point two is um, uh, the next, developing the next level, like specialization training, okay? Um, so instead of it being entry-level programs, the CERT Academy is designed for people who are wanting specialist training. Um, so let's say, as a hypothetical, since we've been talking about it, if you do the NDTF course, it's a three course. It's designed as a generic course. It was always built. It doesn't matter whether you're working for customs, quarantine or police, whether you're a home trainer, whether you want to train dogs for um you know, any particular area, um, um, you know, medical um, alert dog or uh, assistance dog, support dogs, you know, numerous different things. It's a great start. It gives you some background and those kind of things, for better or worse. But it was never meant to be anything more than that. And and it was always meant to be just a sort of a generic course. And you would get the specialist skills by working with your your master, with your uh, technician, with your professional in your industry, okay? So if they were working with you guys, they'd be learning the things you're learning. They probably wouldn't learn much about medical alert work if they were working with you guys. As as far as I know, you guys don't do that, which is fine, okay? Just like in any profession, you're going to be learning about the things that you learn, okay? If you're going to be, learn to be a carpenter, some are building houses, others are building high-rise buildings, okay? You know, high-rise buildings, all steel, no wood. Most houses still using wood frames, both of them are considered to be builders, but they've got different dynamics. The same sort of thing. That's fine. Okay. Um, why it should be. So the idea is to have the specialist one. So we've got specialist course like Pup and Young Dog Development Program. Um, the behavior, uh, which is the most popular course probably, is the um, Canine Behavior Specialist, which is a course for people who want to be consultants. Um, so the NDTF course doesn't really reach anything with relation to being a consultant. Um, you do one day on fear and aggression and dominance and stuff. One day does not make an expert quite clearly. Um, I mean, if you told a clinical psychologist that you only need to do one day dealing with fear, anxiety, separation problems and aggression, they would go, you do one day of education. That's probably what a vet does, but not a but not a not a veterinary behaviorist sort of thing. You know, that, that these are complex areas. So for years the industry's been screaming out to say, well, okay, but where do I get a more formalized, structured, professional, uh, industry-based um education in these specialist fields. And that was the basic model behind the CERT Academy. Let's set up you can doesn't matter what your background is, NDTF or, you know, as I said, Stephen Vicky's course, or you've, you know, we have people who have done a psychology degree. We have people who are vet nurses but have been teaching um, puppy classes at the vet and stuff for the last few years. As long as you've got some sort of background in um, you're not coming in t- just as an, a, a local pet owner, then um, and you say these are the areas that I want to specialise in, whatever particular field or, or endeavour, um, and 
Um, they're very user-friendly courses. You, you do the majority of the work online. Um, you've got 24-7 access to it. You work through it at your own pace. They're very video-centric. So there's lots and lots of um, people talking, um, you know, um, and as you know, Panos, we have Q&A, so um, less every week we have uh, guests on. Panos has been a guest um, talking about different aspects of training, answering questions from the students during the courses and stuff. So it's a nice user-friendly platform. And I'll stress, because I don't want to sound like I'm criticising others, the, the, the platform is much more user-friendly than, say, NDTF, but that's not necessarily their fault. Their problem is that the government has regulated that they can't do this and they have to do this and it has to be done this way. So it becomes incredibly complex and bureaucratic. Um, they would much rather have a much more simple and much more user-friendly process. But um, when you've got that, um, that, unfortunately, because of their regulations under their protocols, they uh, have to go down a different path. And then the third um, aspect of it is to have an industry uh, community doing the input and the development of what the courses are, what is contained in the courses, what students need. And uh, as an example, it's probably a good way to segue. So rather than talking about what how we built the courses that are existing, it'd be nice to briefly talk about courses that are coming up. So we're currently... We're currently talking extensively with serious – any of the people I'm talking about here are the serious industry stakeholders, not people who just have a bit of an idea, but people who are actively working in the industry. So the under development is the process of assistance and service docs across um, many spectrums. So that is everything from disabled people, post-traumatic stress disorder dogs, support dogs for people with uh, autism um, and disabilities and stuff like that, okay? Um, in theory, everything up to and including uh, seeing eye dogs for the blind, but let's just put the actual seeing eye dogs as a separate category because that's an incredibly complex task unto itself and you can't really put that in a collective. But most of the other things, um, originally we were looking at doing it as a one thing. Now it's probably maybe going to be two, an assistance dog who has a lot of tasks as opposed to a port dog. So those can be shorter courses. So we're dealing with various industry stakeholders, um, people who are in the industry, have organisations and, um, and are working with government in those types of areas to develop programs there within the CERT Academy so people be able to get a proper, formal, recognised um, education and qualification in that area. Uh, another one which we're working with the industry stakeholders, and this gets incredibly diverse, we use the term within CERT Academy, and it, we're trying to make it an industry term, the term, and I'd love it if you guys can, can grab it, you'll like it, okay, search and detection, okay, if the dog's using its nose, the all-encompassing term search and detection. So it'll incorporate search and rescue, tracking, trailing, detection work for anything, conservation work, medical, explosives, narcotics, dogs using its nose, we're just going to call it search and detection as the overarching term, just so as we can put it in one framework. And then we've got lots of things underneath that, okay? Um, and so we've got a whole uh, suite of search and detection uh, type programs. Um, so we're, d in fact, developing some tracking stuff for um, uh, various organisations. I 
probably from a confidentiality point of view, I won't mention who they are, but um, organisations and agencies with relation to tracking, relation to search and rescue. Um, we're already consultants for um, both customs and quarantine, that is Border Force, as it's called now. So with their pub development and rearing program, we've delivered a range of um, programs for them on better rearing practices of their dogs and basically in the first year of life to optimise performance and get um, more successes um, and and the other agencies and organisations that we work with. And so, and, and this is a feedback system because it's an industry-based organisation, they're contributing as well. So it's not just us consulting to them. It's like, okay, what are you guys doing? How are you guys doing it? How can you contribute? Come on, talk to us, instruct, give us resources. And so as an industry organisation where it's industry supporting industry, industry training industry, okay, um, so you know, and Panos, I've already mentioned, um, there's actually three things, we won't get into them now, there's three things that Panos has given us as a feedback mechanism, both from his Q&A talk, but also previous discussions that are that we're implementing into the program. And that's just typical of what people are doing. All of these industry leaders, both Australian and international, we're getting them all to feed back in to the program. So it's interesting because some people have said, Boyd, you know, on the CERT Academy, you're doing a lot of the presenting and stuff like that. And I go, well, that'd be like saying that you guys who are running your podcast are doing a lot of the presenting on your podcast. Yes, you're doing a lot of the presenting because you're the facilitators of the thing, okay? It doesn't mean that this podcast is representative of only your opinions. You've got me with my expertise mm -hmm. contributing to it, okay? It's just that it, you know, if you said to me, Boyd, can can we don't want to be the host of our podcast all the time? Can you do half the podcast posts? I'd say no, I can't. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. You know, I'll come on as a guest every now and again, but um, but uh, yeah, and I don't. I, I it is different to a podcast because on a podcast like this, you fundamentally you have a guest, whereas we don't really think of it so much as a guest. We think of it it's industry supporting, driving, promoting, uh, and communicating to industry. So when industry professionals come on, they're part of the CERT team. They're not a guest who's coming on. Mm -hmm. A guest would be somebody like an advisor to government or mm -hmm. a person who's, um, you know, a clinical psychologist or somebody who is out of industry, okay, who's coming on to talk about something else, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, they might be coming on to talk about insurance options um, for dog training in the industry or something like that as an external consultant, okay? But within the CERT Academy, I should sort of point out, we have vets, we have lawyers, okay? Um, Michael Faltermeyer, who's probably the most prolific um, lawyer in Australia for dealing with dog attacks and dangerous dog attacks, been doing it for many, many years. So he's a consultant. Um, I speak with Michael literally every week. Um, we have, like, you know, and um, because I'm always working on cases. We're working on a case today. I actually went and did an assessment during the week and I'm writing the report over the coming days. I was supposed to have it, Michael, yesterday. Um, so I've said, oh, you're not getting it until Saturday. He said, that's fine. Um, so, you know, dog attacks, dog to dog aggression and stuff like that. So, um, and within the CERT course, just as a good practical example, the the course that we talked about, the Applied Canine Behaviour Specialist course, which is the one for dealing with those higher order classes, fear, anxiety, aggression, um, separation problems, uh, you know, hypersensitivity, hyperreactivity, all of those things that are kind of driven by uh, psychological, emotional, affective states, if you know what I mean. So not my dog gets up on the couch, I don't want him to, or my dog doesn't come when I call him, or my dog's jumping up on people, you know, that I wouldn't call those as a rule higher order classes of behaviour, <clears throat> okay? 
Um, some people might say the higher order classes ones that you might categorize as a disorder. I think that's a too much of a generalization, but if it helps people get the drift of what I mean, then okay, fair enough. Um, and so, yeah, so that in that course we have, uh, and, and in all course, all the higher courses, we have uh, electives. They're no cost electives, so you just choose the ones because this was driven by industry. This is a perfect example. When people say, what do you mean by driven by industry? Well, here's the thing. When we set up these courses, we go out to the industry professionals, um, as we did to you, panelists. You're one of the people, the consultants uh, that we went to, uh, as was Glenn, as was numerous other people. Um across the board, across all industry sectors. And we say, okay, here's the basic outline of what the course we want to run. It's a course for people wanting to be consultants dealing with these problems. What type of things would we teach and whatever? And we spend six months doing consultancy on that course alone, going backwards and forwards on what modules should be in there, what's contained in those modules, what modules should be essential so they're part of the qualification? What could be electives where people would want that type of information, but they wouldn't need it to be able to do it? So let's give a hard example of that. Uh, the one we just talked about, uh, expert witness. So as an elective unit, not required for, for certification and no charge included in the course if you want it. It's simply there for you. Um, doing expert witness consultancy, of which Michael Faltermeyer, lawyer, you know, arguably the most experienced. Him and Brett Malky would be the two most experienced guys. Um, uh, Brett is not directly involved with CERT Academy, but because of his dynamic relationship with it, people, you know, so we sort of get sometimes these sort of people are second tier, you know, um, you know, Michael will speak to Brett on a subject and bring the information back to us, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, um, but Michael is a veteran of the industry. He's been doing it for a long, long time, you know, and um, he's done numerous cases all the way to the Supreme Court and everything uh, up and down for every conceivable type of dog aggression, dog attack, dog problem you could possibly imagine. So uh, incredibly learned and um, and knowledgeable guy in the industry and a great dog guy. Absolutely hates euthanasia, will fight um tooth and nail to save every dog that he possibly can within reason um absolutely fantastic dog guy i want to stress that because you can think of a lawyer as being just doing it as a commercial sort of venture yeah is, is um super passionate about dogs which is great so there's the elective unit on um if you're interested in because would would it be fair to say that the majority of consultants probably don't have on their radar that they want to do expert witness works for the courts, okay? They want to do private consults for people at home like you do, Pelt, okay? Yeah, uh, and um, and maybe some consultancy for groups or agencies and things like that or whatever. Um, some of the people are working in rescue centres who are doing the course or whatever, and they have a lot of dogs, so they just want more knowledge on how can we deal with these dogs that have got reactivity, sensitivities, fears, and anxieties and stuff, you know? Um, and they say, but I'm not going to be a consultant. That's just not something that I'm interested in. I, mm. um, I don't want to be writing reports for the courts and things like that. Um, it sounds very glamorous, but believe me, it's it's just hard work. Yeah. Because I've been doing it for a long time and still continue to do it. Um, but that course is just simply an elective. That's never been available for anybody in this country. And to this, yeah. it's just not available to anybody in the world. I'm happy to stand corrected on that. If somebody could uh, communicate with you guys, you'll forward it on to me, no doubt. Um, is the CERT Academy um, accessible to anyone around the world? Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. 
yep it's it's fully uh it's an extremely we talked about it being industry driven. So the industry driven side of it has been great because with the lawyers, with the vets, with the technical people, with the people from assistance dogs and service dogs, with the people from search and detection, with the people from law enforcement, with the people from conservation, with the people from uh, private consults, et cetera. You can see all this dynamic. It's such a melting pot of uh, the dynamic interaction. But one of the things is it's got to be user friendly. It's got to be accessible. You know, why, why, look, the learning is hard. Okay. It's complicated. It, there's yeah. a lot of stuff to learn. You don't want the delivery system to be any more complicated than it can. You want it to be True. as user-friendly as possible. That's why it's very video-centric. Lots of people talking on videos like this, okay? Imagine we could snip, take a five-minute or a three-minute snippet from this video, and that would actually become part of a course if we were mm -hmm. talking about a specific aspect of something, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you might have just been talking about that expert witness dynamic, and you say, right, we'll take that five-minute snippet. That'll be inserted into a module of a course um, to discuss that particular thing. That's probably not a perfect example, but this is the kind of thing for experts all over the world, um, and they're not necessarily dog trainers. They're behavioural scientists, learning scientists, people studying fear and aggression, whatever the case may be. And so we've got all these sort of dynamics working there, but it's designed to be one of the things that we got from the industry has got to be super user-friendly. People have got to be able to access it when they want. They've got to be able to re-watch everything that they want to watch as many times as they want, so unlimited access to it. They've got to be able to ask questions and have them answered. That's why we do canine uh, Q&A, which, as you know, Panos was a – I'm going to use the word guest, even though we don't think of them as guests because Panos is part of the team, okay, part of CERT Academy. It's industry supporting industry, industry driving industry, industry educating industry, okay, for industry by industry. Okay. So it's the it's, it's so it's so needed. It's so needed and like everything's so thorough within the the academy and, and looking through all the content and and participating through it. It's it's thorough. There there's there's community, there's networking. You're doing the right things. It's so it's well everyone's doing the right thing in, in within the academy. It's working so well. But on top of all that, you know, and this is like a whole nother um um, topic in itself, but but we will wrap this up in a moment. Is that you know, in e any time before this is when this is where we need to be together as much as possible to to have something that glues the industry together rather than it being so fragmented because um, you know there there is a common you know adverse adversary out there to um to 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 the industry itself you know just methodology and ideas and philosophies so. Having something that is above just an individual, but it is a collective, I think it's so important. And if, you know, if, if as many of us as possible can contribute towards that, I think that's um, really important for, for us in the future. If you have me back as a guest again in the future, the key points you just said, methodology, ideology and, and process and stuff like that, wouldn't be a bad topic to talk about. I'm sure you've had other people who've talked about it. No, I'll write it. that down right now. Yeah. Um, for sure. It wouldn't even necessarily just need to be me. You know, you could have... You know, having Glenn on at the same time or something like that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Let's that'd see cool. that up. I'd, I'd love that. Um, but while while I'm uh, on that point, I'm going to um, put it out there that for anybody that's interested within any of the courses, um, there's a there's a code that you guys have gave me. It's Nooch's 10, N-O-O-C-H-S 10, 1, 0. That, that gives you a 10% discount for the T4 um, applied Which courses. Which are the which are the specialist courses that we've been talking about, the yeah, the higher level um, 
you know, professional specialist courses. I've got here pup and young dog development specialist for and applied canine behavior specialist for courses. So go onto the website, check that out, um, certacademy.com.au so you can get um, further information. Use that code, you get your 10% discount. Um, and if anyone out there has any questions, send it to us or directly um, to Cert Academy. But anything that comes to us that requires um, Boyd or the team um, up there to, to uh, answer it, then I'm happy to forward that through as well for sure. If they do want to connect with us um, or get anything, um, firstly, they can just go to the CERT Academy. Um, if you just Google CERT Academy dogs, it's worth putting the word dogs at the end just to, because CERT Academy is quite a sort of generic name and it could send you off to somewhere in, you know, Switzerland doing, sort of, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, who knows what, hair therapy. Or <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and so yeah just put cert academy dogs and you'll find the website there all the information about what it is and uh, the courses or alternatively if you want to directly communicate with us probably the best way to go is just um info at certacademy.com.au okay so it's very simple info at cert academy or one word man that's been really really um good episode we will wrap it up because all of us need to go and go back to work and train some dogs but um, thank you, Boyd, for for coming on the show. It, you are a wealth of information. You know, you're as you said. You know, you said it yourself. You're the grandfather of the dog training world in, in Australia, and um, I prefer Godfather. Okay, okay, okay. I'm I'm gonna take. Oh no, that was Glenn. That was making fun of you, right? Um, right. The, the Godfather dog training. Look, and um, truly inspiring. So knowledgeable. Um, I I know that the audience and the listeners are gonna um get so much out of, out of today's episode. But um, this is new things moving forward. And as I said. Um, keeping us together, being learned and being actual true professionals because we're not carnies anymore. Like dog trainers used to be gypsies and, um, and and it used to be like a lower level sort of um, thing that, that the society saw, but it actually is becoming um, more of a profession that is actually, um, you know, revered in, in so many ways. So, um, so I'm, I'm happy, we're happy to have you on because, you know, you're responsible for a lot of the growth in, in our country, which is, which is so cool. Great. Very grateful. Thanks for coming on, man. Can I just add two quick points just to sort of follow up of on that point? For okay. Sure. Um, so the first one is um, when people are doing Cert Academy, they're welcome to visit. Um, there's various people who they can associate with um, at different levels. But we have a really nice facility down here in Melbourne. And when you're doing the courses, you're welcome to come down and train with us. We have a whole lot of dogs. You can even work with our dogs. We have everything, detector dogs, obedience dogs, service dogs, all sorts of dogs trained for all sorts of different applications. So people, the students are coming down all the time. Um, and we every week we have available training slots and the like. So that's where people can get their practical experience if they're not already working with some sort of agency organization or group or whatever or person uh, and they want that practical and even if they are they're welcome to come down there's no extra charge for that it's incorporated in the course and um, yeah as I said we have a really nice indoor outdoor big facility um, very modern efficient training and lots of really cool stuff and lots of really cool dogs so come and train with us um, and the um yeah, no, I think we, we can just leave it at that. that. That'll do. Boyd, you're a champion. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm going to tee that in the next episode up at some stage um, over the next couple of months with you and Glenn. I'm um, talking the about- The Godfather. And the what God do we call Glenn? <laughs> Godfather Light. <laughs> <laughs> we'll think of one and we'll, and, 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 we'll, and we'll announce it in the next episode. No worries, Scott. Thank you, Boyd, so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Life With Your Dog. Please share with your friends if you're enjoying our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. 
You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, Life With Your Dog Podcast. My name's Panos, and to keep up with my dog training adventures, tips and techniques, you can find me on Instagram at NP underscore dog underscore training, my website, npdogtraining.com, or my YouTube channel, Nutris Pooches. Thanks for listening, guys. My name's Luke. If you'd like to find out more about my dog training services, you can find me at www.kizuna, that's K-I-Z-U-N-A, canine, C-A-N-I-N-E, .com.au. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Kizuna Canine Training. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.